Amen. Thank you, choir and orchestra. I like that. I was looking at some of you, and you were smiling and singing along. You liked it, too. Anna Mills, I understand you got uh, engaged. Hope it works out for you. I think all of you know that if you say what you believe, you're going to end up in trouble. The governor and legislature in North Carolina took a stand, signed a bill for freedom of religion and immediately got in trouble. The media turned against them, business came against them, the NBA came against them, the NCAA came against them, the ACC came against them, and now the University of South Carolina is deciding what they're going to do, and I'm sure that they will do the right thing concerning that, but we all are criticized when we say what we believe. Even on occasion, I will receive some correspondence that's not especially happy with some of the things that I say. I'm reminded of Dwight L. Moody, who was preaching a crusade. He was up on the platform. One of the ushers came up and handed him a letter. He opened the letter, and it had one word on it, fool. He looked at it, and then when it was time for him to speak, he walked up to the pulpit and said, through my lifetime and my ministry, I've received a lot of letters that were not signed. This is the first time I've received one that was signed and they forgot to write the letter. <laughs> well, Jesus had that problem as well. He said some things and oftentimes was criticized as a result of it. For instance, he referred to some of the religious leaders of his days as being children of the devil. In John 8, 44, he said, you are of your father, the devil. I don't know why someone had not told him that they could be offended by that remark, but he said it anyway. He also referred to them as liars. In John chapter 8, verse 55, he said, if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. So Jesus oftentimes was not politically correct, but the, the thing that bothered his opponents most was his calling himself or referring to himself as God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, when he referred to himself as I am or used those two words, he was referring to himself as God. You may recall when Moses met with the Lord at the burning bush that God said to him, I want you to deliver my people. Go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, well, who am I going to tell Pharaoh hath sent me? And God said, tell him, I am hath sent you. And so when Jesus uses those two words, I am, referring to himself, he is calling himself God. As a result of that, he was chased from the temple. In John chapter 8, same chapter, verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So all of that is found in John chapter 8. Now we come to John chapter 9 immediately after that, and there Jesus encounters a man blind from birth. 
Take your Bibles, look with me at John chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. All right, in verse number one, the story begins by saying that Jesus encounters a man who is blind from birth. He is blind. He cannot see. He is blind from birth, which means that he has never seen. That means that this man had never seen the beauty of a setting sun. He had never seen the colors of a flower. He had never looked into the face of a child. And he could not see the one who was about to heal him. But Jesus intervened in this man's life. Now you see there in verse 1, and as he passed by. That, that's of interest to me because I think that it is important. You see, Jesus' ministry to people was not the result of a program it was a natural part of his life as he passed by. So as Jesus went through life, he constantly came across people who needed ministry and he ministered to them. Was wasn't a program. For instance, one day he was walking along, came, looked up into a sycamore tree and there was Zacchaeus. So Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Today I'm going home with you. He ministered to Zacchaeus and led him to faith. That was in the natural progress of his life as he passed by. He was in Jericho. There was a blind beggar sitting by the roadside whose name was Bartimaeus. He cried out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus said, bring the man to me, and he healed him. The point is that as he passed by or in the normal traffic pattern of his life, he ministered to people. That is the instruction that he has given to us. See, because we won't, don't do that, we oftentimes design programs to cause us to do it. But even in the Great Commission, it literally says, as you go, make disciples. So as we live our lives, we see people who need ministry and we minister to them. So it says, and as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The word saw is interesting because it means to see and to know. 
this was not a casual glance. When Jesus saw the man, he saw the man. He knew. He knew the man's need. So he saw and he knew. So he encounters a man who is blind from birth. Now, the disciples ask a question, verse number 2. And his disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? That also is instructive, I think. Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. He paused to minister to the man. The disciples saw the man blind from birth, and they were more interested in who was at fault rather than in ministering to the man. The truth is they are actually voicing a belief of that day. You, you see, it was believed during that time especially that all suffering was punitive. In other words, if you were suffering, it was punishment for something. So that is what they are expressing. There are two basic ideas probably that they had in mind. The first is the transmigration of the soul. This is the idea they held back then that maybe someone sinned in this life and now then in the next life they are being punished. Albert Barnes wrote, many of the Jews as it appears from the writings in the doctrine of the transmigration of souls, believe the soul of a man in consequence of sin might be compelled to pass into their bodies and be punished there. So there was the idea of the transmigration of the soul that someone sinned here and they are punished there. There were some who believed that it was possible for a person to sin before they were born that a fetus could sin. Barnes wrote, they also believed that an infant might sin before it was born and that consequently this blindness might have come upon the child as a consequence of that. So there were those who believed that it was possible for a person to sin while in the womb, that it was possible for a person to sin before that person was born. I have to confess to you, I do not understand that. What, what would be the temptation of a fetus? I don't know. What would be the, the sin of a fetus? I don't know. But people believe that. So the question of the disciples came from this understanding. They asked the question, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Perhaps they sinned. Because it was also believed that a parent could sin and the punishment then was passed on to their child. One commentator wrote, it was also a doctrine with many that the crime of the parent might be the cause of deformity in the child. So the disciples saw the man, they asked the question, Jesus who sinned, this man, sinned before he was born because he was blind from birth. Or was it his parents said? Who is responsible for this man's suffering? Well, we understand that sin causes suffering. We know that generally speaking. Sin has always caused suffering. For instance, in the, 
in the garden in original sin. God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the fruit. You can enjoy all of the garden. But this one tree you are not to touch. In the day that you do, you're going to die. They disobeyed the Lord. As a result of their disobedience, sin came into the world. And there was suffering that accompanied that sin. You recall the story as to how they were removed from the garden. You recall the story that after they sinned, one of their sons, Cain, slew his brother Abel. All that came about as a result of sin, so we understand that. And also that man has been infected by their sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin so we know that there is suffering that goes with sin we we also know from a practical standpoint that there is suffering that accompanies sin because we reap what we sow in exodus chapter 34 verse number seven he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So we know that there is suffering for sin from a practical standpoint because we reap what we sow. Studies have revealed that if a child grows up in the home of an alcoholic, there's a greater chance of that child being an alcoholic. Studies have revealed to us that an abuser oftentimes was first abused. We know that if a child grows up in a home where the mother or the father is not faithful to their spouse, there's a greater chance of the child being unfaithful. So the principle then that there is suffering for sin is generally true but it is specifically untrue. I give us an example of the case of Job. You know the story of Job. He is known as a man of suffering. The Bible tells a story how he lost everything. There was a storm. He lost his cattle. He lost his belongings. He lost his house. We know that his children were taken captive. We know that his wife was was uh, turn, uh, turned against him. We know that his body was diseased. We know all those things about Job. Well, his friends who came to comfort him believed that he was suffering because of sin in his life. They believed that the reason he was going through, what he was going through, was because of sin that was in his life. In fact, Eliphaz declared that. In Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Eliphaz, who had come to comfort Job, said, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. So when Eliphaz came to comfort Job, he said, Job, the reason you're going through this is because of sin in your life. But the truth is he was not suffering because of sin. He was being tested. 
This was a test that was going on in his life according to the Bible. Now, let me give you a New Testament example. There were the Galileans who suffered. The Bible says in Luke 13, 1, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. All right, so the Galileans are going through a time of suffering and the, the believers or the Christians at that time were asking the question, are they suffering as they are because of sin in their life? Is that the reason for it? Are they going through this because of unconfessed sin in their life? Well, Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. So the point that I'm making at here is that not all suffering is the result of sin. So in verse number three, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Now Jesus is not suggesting that the man had never sinned. That's not what he is saying. He is saying that his suffering is not the result of sin. So what is the lesson? He continues in verse three, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. I don't like to suffer. I'm assuming you probably don't either. Truth is, there are some lessons we learn through suffering that we could not learn any other way. Paul Turnier wrote, successes have their meaning and there is no question of undervaluing them. However, failures also have their meaning, perhaps a deeper meaning. What gives all of them meaning is that they work together toward the fulfillment of God's plan. We may not enjoy it, but the truth is sometimes our suffering teaches us lessons we could learn no other way. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We do not know what that thorn was. I know there's a lot of speculation of all sorts as to what it was. Truth is, though, we do not know what it was. Paul went to the Lord on three occasions and asked God to remove the thorn from him. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. So as a result of the thorn that Paul endured, he learned about the sufficiency of God it might be, my friend, that you're going through a time of suffering. It might be that you're going through a difficult time in your life. And it is because there is something you need to learn that you could learn no other way. And so the Lord is using that to teach you what he wants you to learn. Jesus saw the man, reached out to him in compassion. The disciples saw the man and they raised a theological question. Jesus was concerned about the man's needs and uh, he healed him. You'll notice in verse number six, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, so the Bible says that Jesus saw the man. He had compassion. He saw him as he really was. He saw him and knew. He understood. 
And he reached out to him with healing. He made clay from spittle and clay on the ground, put it on his eyes. Now why he did that, I have no earthly idea. I'm sure that there are some who know I'm not one of them. That's just what Jesus did. So that was the Lord's part. Now what is the man's part in verse number 7? And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. You see, folks, the Savior initiates, but we cooperate. Had this man not been obedient, he would not have been healed. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Naaman. Naaman was a leper, and the little slave girl in his house told him about a prophet in her country. She said to Naaman, if you will go to him, then he will heal you of leprosy. So he went to the prophet. The prophet told him, go to the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times. Well, the, the military man, Naaman, was incensed by it. He said, I'm supposed to go down there and dip seven times. I came all this way, and that's what you tell me to do. I'm to go dip in the river. We have rivers back at home, and they're cleaner than this one. I'm supposed to go and dip in that river. Finally, he went to the river and he dipped seven times. The thing that is of interest to me is that he was not healed until he dipped the seventh time. When he fulfilled his responsibility. You see, the Lord tells us what to do and then it is up to us to be obedient. So Jesus then reached out to the man to give him physical healing and also spiritual healing, and his spiritual healing was progressive. I want you to see, because this is fascinating to me, the way that it worked. When he was asked, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And look at verse number 10. Therefore they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who's called Jesus. So when he was first asked who healed him, he referred to Jesus as the man. Now look at verse number 17. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Now, do you see the progression taking place? He began, who healed you? It was a man. They asked him again. He was a prophet. Then he saw him as a healer. Verse number 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. He said, I don't know all you're talking about. I know that I was blind now that I can see. He said, he's a healer. This man is a, so he is a man, he is a prophet, he is a healer. Then he said he's from God, verse number 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see the progression taking place a little bit at a time. He's a man, he's a prophet, he's a healer. He's from God, and then he saw him as the Savior, verse number 38. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He must be the promised Messiah. So Jesus responded to this blind man in compassion. He healed him physically. He healed him spiritually. You and I are to be compassionate as well. In verse number 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming, when no man can work. I think there are two lessons we need to learn here. First, we need to learn to see. Folks, we pass by people every day and we don't see them. 
We don't see what their need is. Your students, you, you sit side by side, other students who have spiritual needs, but do you see them? In my last church, there was a man that I got to know. He was an oil man. If you're from that part of the country, he's an oily. And uh, he epitomized what you think of when you think of an oily. He was wealthy, had a big house. His garage was bigger than my house, literally. It was filled with expensive cars. He wore the jewelry. He did all those things. And so usually when people saw him, they just saw him as being a rich man. I talked to him one day and realized that he was a rich man as far as this world was concerned, but he was lost. And in my office, I saw him as he got down on his knees and confessed his sin and invite Jesus to be his Savior. I have a friend in Charleston that I've prayed for for a long time. He went to Israel with us, and I had the opportunity of seeing him get on his knees there by the garden tomb and invite Christ into his life to be his Savior. We need to learn to see that there are people around us who might appear to have everything as far as the world is concerned, and yet they need Jesus, and we need to do this as we go. Next week we begin, give me five, and that is simply an emphasis to share Christ. We're asking you to do two things during that time, five at five, pray for five minutes every day at five. Ask God to send revival. Secondly, invite five people to church during that five-week period, five in five. But as we go, we need to see people and their need of Christ. Well, the world does not understand those touched by God. They try to explain it some way, and they did with this man in verse number 8. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Now, you notice they didn't refer to him as having been blind. They said, Isn't that the beggar? Verse number 9. Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. There were some of them because of the change in his life. Now you can see they were saying, uh, now, it looks like him, but I don't think it's him. We've seen this guy for a long time. and I think This guy looks like him, but I, I don't think, think it's him. See, they were confounded by the change in this man's life. Let me ask you a question. If you call yourself a child of God, are you confounding to those who know you because of the change in your life? Truth is, we are doubted. People don't understand. I was talking to a friend of mine from high school the other day, Philip Keeter. See, I didn't grow up expecting to be a preacher. There was no one I grew up with who expected me to be a preacher. This is very different from what was expected. I was talking with Philip, and he said, who would have thought it would have ended this way? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I ended up bald and you ended up a preacher. Sometimes it is surprising to people and they doubt what has happened to us. They try to explain it and then we turn around and doubt other people when they have been changed as well. But the blind man gave his testimony, shared his sight with others in verse number 10. Therefore they were saying to him, how were your eyes open? He answered, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and 
and I received sight. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? He said, Jesus told me what to do and I obeyed and I can see. That's pretty simple. Jesus told me what to do, I did it, and now I can see. Folks, that's what you and I need to learn to do. Just share your testimony. No one can refute that. What has Jesus done in your life? We think we have to memorize this plan that someone made. And they're not bad. I've, I've memorized a lot of them. And God has used them. But the most powerful tool you have is the testimony that God has given to you. I was lost. And Jesus saved me. And now I'm different. Let me conclude. We need to see people. We encounter people daily who are spiritually blind. We need to understand that regardless as to how they look, regardless as to how much they have, if they don't have Jesus, they are blind. Share your testimony. Tell them how God has changed your life. What has God done in your life? That's what you tell them. The song says, come to the light, to shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind. But now I can see the light of the world is Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus loves you. He died to pay for your sin. He offers to us salvation. That's his part. Our part is to repent of sin and to put faith in Christ, trusting him as Savior. Have you ever done that? Not asking you if you've been baptized, joined a church, filled out a card, fulfilled catechism, any of those things. Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Because that's when our life has changed. Our Father, we come to a time of people considering their relationship to you. And I pray, Father, for, for those who have never been saved, that today they might trust Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would heal them spiritually. In the name of Jesus, I ask, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, that you would come to him today. Commit your life to him. Let him change your life. Give you sight. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.